This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have a CBS News special report on the Casablanca Conference between U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and other Allied leaders. It also includes an update on the war from Edward R. Murrow in London. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast where you can find links to past episodes and other interesting items. So thanks for listening and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One of the biggest news stories of the war has just been released. To tell you that story, here is John Daly of CBS World News. President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill have held a 10-day war conference in Casablanca on French North Africa's west coast. The president called the meeting the Unconditional Surrender Conference, at which full plans were laid for carrying on the fight until Germany, Italy, and Japan are completely destroyed and surrender unconditionally. The President and Mr. Churchill were accompanied by the combined Chiefs of Staff of the United States and Great Britain. Russian Premier Stalin was invited to the conference, but was unable to attend because of the need for his presence in Russia to direct the Russian winter offensives. However, both Stalin and Chinese Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek were kept informed of all the conference decisions. At the same time, General Charles de Gaulle, leader of the Fighting French, and General Honoré Giraud, High Commissioner of French North Africa, met with President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill. The French leaders issued a joint statement after two days of discussion. It said, We have met, we have talked, we have registered our entire agreement on the end to be achieved, which is the liberation of France and the triumph of human liberties by the total defeat of the enemy. This end will be attained by a union in war of all Frenchmen fighting side by side with their allies. However, despite this indication that the political troubles in French North Africa were about to come to an end, an Associated Press dispatch from Algiers tonight quotes well-informed sources as saying that any definite settlement between de Gaulle and Giraud is going to be a long and tedious process. Together with the combined chiefs of staff, virtually the entire military and naval staffs of Great Britain and the United States participated in the discussions. They began on January 14th near Casablanca and ended last Sunday afternoon with a press conference for a group of war correspondents, among them CBS's Charles Cullingwood. The correspondents were flown secretly from Allied headquarters in North Africa. Later, we will give you Collingwood's eyewitness report of the meeting, a meeting which President Roosevelt described as unprecedented in history. The president flew to North Africa. He was accompanied by General Marshall, Chief of Staff of the United States Army, Admiral Ernest J. King, Chief of Naval Operations, Lieutenant General Arnold, Chief of the Army Air Forces, 
and Harry Hopkins. Prime Minister Churchill was accompanied by the British Army, Naval and Air Chiefs. In addition, American Generals Eisenhower, Clark and Spots came from French North Africa and British commanders, Generals Alexander and Montgomery and Air Chief Marshal Tedder came from Libya. There was hardly an expert who could aid in the discussions who was not there. General Somerville, commanding general of the United States Army Services of Supply, was at hand, as was Abel Harriman, Lend-Lease Coordinator in England. Robert Murphy, United States Minister to North Africa, and Harold Macmillan, British Resident Minister for Allied Headquarters in North Africa, represented the diplomatic services, and undoubtedly they aided in the discussions with General de Gaulle and General Giraud. The President said that while he and Prime Minister Churchill were in almost constant conference, the British and American combined staffs discussed the principles and methods of pooling all the resources of the United Nations. At his press conference concluding the meetings, the President outlined the decisions which had been reached. All those participating in the discussions reaffirmed their determination to destroy the military power of the Axis and at the same time plotted the Allied military operations for 1943. All possible help will be sent to aid the Russian offensives, thereby cutting down German manpower as well as wearing out German material. And the United Nations will give all possible aid to, in the heroic struggle of China now in its sixth year and thereby end for all time the attempts of the Japs to dominate the Far East. The President also said that there was no intention on the part of the United Nations to harm the people of the Axis countries or of the Axis-dominated countries. However, he said the United Nations certainly would destroy the philosophy of hate and fear for the subjugation of other peoples. The President stressed that he and Churchill and their staffs had completed their work and that the general staffs had had a meeting of minds on all the military operations. He said he was confident that 1943 would be a much better year than 1942. Both the President and Prime Minister Churchill were entirely satisfied with the results of the conference. Churchill said there had never been a conference to equal the present one for comprehensiveness, and he added that the results of the conference would give the Allied troops their best chance at victory. He said that at that very moment, heavy actions impended. He pointed out that the British Eighth Army had followed Rommel 1,500 miles across Libya and added that it was like Mary and the Little Lamb. Everywhere the Rommel went, the Eighth Army was sure to go. The President also visited American troops in the field and motored 108 miles northward to Port Leote and placed wreaths on both American and French graves there. One tragedy marred the otherwise perfect arrangements for the meeting. En route to the conference from Allied headquarters in North Africa, Edward Boudry, a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation correspondent, was killed by Spanish anti-aircraft fire when the plane went over Spanish Morocco. That, in brief, is the story of one of the most sensational news developments since Pearl Harbor. It's a story that affects directly or indirectly every nation in the world. CBS World News now brings you a report direct from one of the nations most vitally concerned. We hear from CBS London, Edward R. Murrow reporting. This is London. London's reaction to the communique from Casablanca can only be called cautious. The secret had been well kept, and no great expectations had been aroused. Many people knew that the Prime Minister was out of the country, but they didn't know where he had gone. Mr. Churchill had traveled more than 40,000 miles since he became Prime Minister. People are accustomed to his travels. Back in those grim days of 1940, he went to Bordeaux, hoping to strengthen a French government that was quivering like a whipped puppy. He was flying, and the weather report was bad. As the Prime Minister left 10 Downing Street, he said to one of his men, Bring me my heavy pistol. Someone asked him what he wanted with a pistol. And he replied, If we should be forced down, 
I should like to account for at least one hunt before my life ends. And now, as I am speaking, British radio stations are pouring out to the continent the Anglo-American pledge that there will be no end to this war until there is unconditional surrender. Until the whole fascist system has been accounted for. The morning papers reached the streets about three hours ago, and they were permitted to print the full story. And the British radio is now telling the story to listeners on the continent. Listeners in this country will hear the first broadcast news tomorrow morning. In general, tomorrow's papers all welcome the meeting and agree that the vital decisions cannot be revealed at this time. But there is regret that no Russian representatives were present. Tomorrow's Daily Herald sums up what the conference has not achieved. No grand strategic council of the four great allies. No word about coordinated post-war aims. The phrase, the two countries, is too prominent to satisfy those who had hoped for effective collaboration between the Eastern and Western allies. The Liberal News Chronicle asks, was the political situation in North Africa so deplorable that it demanded their immediate presence? If so, it can hardly be supposed that the handshakes exchanged under their genial auspices between General Zero and De Gaulle will have been sufficient to unravel the disreputable tangle of Anglo-American-French relations. There is a widespread feeling that the two generals may have agreed upon ends, but that the means of achieving those ends have not been agreed upon. Some circles here were surprised at the emphasis placed upon unconditional surrender. It had been assumed that neither side would be interested in a compromised peace. If peace fears have been or are about to be put forward, this repeated determination to fight to the finish is the answer. It should also be read in conjunction with the concluding sentence of Stalin's order of the day issued yesterday when he spoke of the expulsion of the Germans over the boundaries of our motherland. That is not the same thing as unconditional surrender. I think it's fair to say that the welcome given to the announcement is tempered only by regret that the Russians and the Chinese were unable to attend, and by the absence of any promise that the political difficulties in North Africa are about to be cleared up. The governments in exile here in London will naturally welcome the assurance of concerted offensive action, but most people will not expect it to occur at once. This was a planning conference, and it is well to remember the months that passed between the planning and the launching of the North African offensive. Many of the decisions reached will only be revealed on the battlefield, and most people will agree that that is as it should be. Some London papers are predicting, or suggesting, that one of the first results will be that General Alexander will be given command of all operations in North Africa. It's difficult to summarize British reaction to this announcement for the very good reason that most people that I know over here no longer react to pronouncements. That's not to say they're disappointed with this one. They're probably mildly encouraged by it. But they prefer to wait and see. That is perhaps a natural result of three and a half years of war. If this conference, this impressive spectacle of allied unity, is followed by action, particularly action in North Africa, people will say it was a great thing. If that doesn't happen, 
they will be disappointed. I return you now to New York and John Daly. We regret that due to transmission difficulties, we're unable to bring you a direct report tonight from Columbia's correspondent, Charles Collingwood, who attended the press conference held by the President and Prime Minister Churchill. But Collingwood has cabled his report, and we are given a pretty good idea of what went on at that press conference. Says Collingwood, the President of the Prime Minister met the newsman in the rear garden of a villa on the outskirts of Casablanca. The entire area for blocks was full of troops, anti-aircraft equipment, and barbed wire. The newsmen sat in the grass at the feet of the seated Roosevelt and Churchill. General de Gaulle and General Giraud were also seated. Soon the business of taking pictures began. The four men posed one way, then another, but not before the President and the Prime Minister had a little exchange about their hats. The President asked Churchill if he wanted to take his hat off. Churchill said no, he wore it to keep the sun out of his eyes, and he said the President should wear his. But Mr. Roosevelt replied that he was born without a hat, and he didn't see any reason for one now. While the cameramen were working, the president recognized one of them and joshed him. Finally, the president asked Generals de Gaulle and Giraud to pose for the photographers. He wanted them shaking hands. The leader of the fighting French and the chief of the French in North Africa went into the traditional stance. But it seems some of the photographers weren't satisfied. They wanted another chance at the picture. Okay, boys, the president said, but this will have to be the last one. Soon, Mr. Roosevelt asked the newsmen to move up closer for the conference. All this time, there was plenty of activity in the whole area. Lieutenant Colonel Elliot Roosevelt, the president's son, helped with arrangements, as did Harry Hopkins' son, Robert, who was a corporal. Secret Service agents had the group surrounded. When some of the newsmen tried to filter back toward the president's chair, they were quickly shooed away. Meanwhile, the whole Casablanca area was alive, protecting, watching, making sure that everything went off according to plan. The entire area was impregnated with battery after battery of anti-aircraft guns. Off to the side of the garden, where the British and American leaders met newsmen, was a fancy tile swimming pool. That is, it used to be a swimming pool. It had been converted into an air raid shelter. During their talk with the press and radio men, the president smoked cigarettes in his long holder. Churchill kept a cigar in his mouth, but it was no longer lighted when the conference broke up. Before the newsmen started to make arrangements to send this hottest story to their home radio networks and newspapers, the president was presented with a Morocco-bound portfolio. It contained the signatures of all persons who had talked and visited with him at his villa. Mr. Roosevelt seemed quite proud of it. He even remarked to his son, Elliot, that the Arabic signatures should have English meanings written in brackets. But the younger Roosevelt pointed out that at least one signature was marked just that way. Incidentally, the president said that that famous portfolio is going into his library at Hyde Park, so some 100,000 persons will have a look at it every year. The press conference was quite similar to others, except that no questions could be asked of Mr. Roosevelt or of Mr. Churchill. The two leaders got off their usual quota of good humor and good cracks. The president also took time during his important 10-day visit to inspect American troops in French Morocco. Our commander-in-chief rode in a jeep. Behind him came all the other big shots from America, and the soldiers who had to rehearse for the review felt quite certain it was just another bunch of brass hats. That is, until they saw the president. Then, says Collingwood, despite the fact they stood rigidly at attention, their eyes almost popped out when they saw Franklin Delano Roosevelt himself not six feet away with that big smile of his. This auto convoy was heavily guarded. Secret Service agents, Scotland Yard, our military police, Royal Marines, armored cars, fighter planes overhead all the time. Correspondents who made this trip said that the president joked with the generals accompanying him as usual, and several times he spoke with soldiers. But most of the time he appeared dead serious. Once his hat flew off, but Lieutenant General Mark Clark caught it for him. Finally, the chief executive sat down at a field kitchen to eat what all our soldiers eat, 
a typical infantry field luncheon. After that dinner, there was some troop inspecting, then the convoy proceeded to Port Leote, the scene of some of the hardest fighting in the North African campaign. The president's car had changed from a jeep to a limousine and stopped in front of a neat cemetery where American boys are buried. He laid a wreath at the foot of the flagpole. Then the convoy returned to Casablanca, 108 miles away through a drizzling rain. Correspondents report that word of the president's passing early in the morning made the rounds very quickly, so that on the return trip, the roads were lined with American soldiers. And that is Charles Collingwood's cabled report of what went on at that press conference in Casablanca. Now for a discussion of the tremendous military importance of the decisions made at Casablanca, here is Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. The tone of the Casablanca conference appears to have been predominantly military, with the attendance of the chiefs of the British and American armies, navies, and air forces, the commanders-in-chief in North Africa and the Middle East with their army and air force commanders, and the commander-in-chief of the Mediterranean fleet. The discussions, said to have embraced the whole global strategy of this worldwide war, were, of course, the outcome of much more lengthy discussions and plans, which must have been in hand for many weeks, both in Washington and in London and of which it is to be presumed that the Russian and Chinese high commands have been kept informed. No doubt General Eisenhower, General Alexander, and General Montgomery gave their views on how long it would take to complete the ejection of the Axis forces from their last foothold in Africa. Admiral Cunningham and Air Marshal Tedder may have presented views on the subsequent conditions under which the Mediterranean might be open to our convoys. But the burning question under discussion must have been, what next? There are many possible answers to that question, and the Axis would like, of course, to know the ones which found favor at Casablanca. Perhaps various, al various alternative plans, per prepared by various sections of the Joint and Combined Staffs in Washington and London, were examined, and decisions made between them. Having cleaned up the Mediterranean, shall we be able to find more forces for the Far East? Can we turn Wavell's invasion of Burma into a full-scale attempt to recover that country, and so reopen the road into China? Can we send the British submarines to the Pacific to aid in cutting the Japanese lifelines? Had Chiang Kai-shek been there, surely his voice would have been raised in favor of these suggestions. But no doubt the major interest remains centered on Germany, the more powerful and the more immediately dangerous of the two enemy nations. What next for Germany? How shall we deal with the submarine menace? Cunningham and King and Pound must have had their heads close together over that. Shall we invade the continent? And where? Then the great air offensive against Germany, reinforced from African bases. How much effort shall we put into that? We have only so many tons of steel production, only so many man hours of skilled labor. How shall it be apportioned amongst the various and pressing tasks before us? How much for our own efforts, and how much for our Russian and Chinese allies, and how much for the shipping to move it all to the places where it can be used against the enemy? All these things were talked of, and as to all, no doubt, decisions of greater or less permanence were reached. The decision actually taken, the enemy will know only when he begins to suffer the results on the battlefield. But many observers will regret that there was no word from Casablanca of a permanent United Nations organization for the central direction of the war. So far as we know, we do not yet have a Supreme War Council. Throughout our nation, tomorrow morning's newspapers will discuss the pros and cons of this major development in their editorial columns. CBS World News has polled the nation's editors from coast to coast and now brings you the highlights of the editorials which you will read tomorrow morning. In the East, the New York Times. The President's visit to Casablanca is a bold and brilliant stroke of leadership. Its immediate results are a new unity on the part of our French allies and complete agreement between the British and American war staffs on the campaigns which will be undertaken in every theater of war 
in close association with our friends, the Russians and the Chinese. But beyond this, there are even larger implications. There is fresh evidence in this dramatic meeting held within a few hours airplane flight of the African battlefront that the initiative and with it the capacity for sudden telling moves has indeed passed into the hands of the United Nations. The New York Herald Tribune. The historic meeting at Casablanca has been surrounded with all the dramatic decoration with uh, such an occasion could suggest. The announced results, as is probably inevitable under the requirements of secrecy, are somewhat less impressive. The Herald Tribune goes on, It is evident that some of the hopes inspired by the unofficial comment of the last couple of weeks were premature. No Allied Supreme War Council has emerged from the conference, nor is there any hint of one. The problems of every theater of war were canvassed, but there was no one present who was primarily identified with the conduct of the war in the Far East. The newspaper PM. For all the columns of space now pouring out about the conference, the American people still don't know the crucial thing. What happened at Casablanca? One thing we do know, and it counts for a lot. We know that the leaders of the two wartime democracies, whatever their age in years, are youthful, vigorous figures who intend to make war happen to the enemy instead of waiting for the war to happen to us. The biggest single meaning is that the Casablanca Conference marks a more dramatic and intensified waging of the war in the old way, a war still without a Supreme War Council, a war in which we still collaborate with former fascists and push into the background disquieting questions of whether we practice the democracy we preach. The Washington Post. In this dramatic world, the fact that this meeting was held on French soil provides a special thrill. The silenced folks from North Cape to the Aegean Sea will see in this meeting a lamp under their feet. Not only will give them renewed hope and speedy liberation, it will sweep away a miasma of doubt which had spread over the free world as a result of the political maneuverings in North Africa. By meeting on French soil, by sponsoring the concurrent meeting between General de Gaulle and General Giraud, the two great leaders of English-speaking people showed a sensitiveness to the implications of a lack of political policy. The Newark Evening News. No sooner had an Anglo-American expedition landed in North Africa than President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill, both men of imagination, saw at once that this must be the situs of their next meeting. This was high drama. This was high statesmanship, which knows how to put opportunities to most effective use. But both the President and the Prime Minister know that wars are not fought with weapons alone, but with those sometimes vague spiritual qualities that are grouped under the designation morale. The Philadelphia Inquirer. President Roosevelt's precedent-shattering flight to North Africa and his history-making conferences there have given America the biggest thrill of the war. But they have done more than that. The epical gathering at Casablanca presumably has cleared away pedophaging political hindrances in North Africa, welded allied unity, and produced a blueprint for final decisive overthrow of the murderous axis. The Philadelphia Record. Today, the American people share that same thrilling astonishment which jolted our boys in North Africa when, as if from Shangri-La, the President of the United States rode by in a jeep. He had come to see them through the sky, as no President ever had traveled in wartime. To us, that is the most important fact of this whole historic and dramatic occasion. The Baltimore Morning Sun. Nothing in the whole course of the war is more welcome than this ringing assurance from the President and Mr. Churchill of complete agreement on the present essentials of the war effort. Added to it is the declaration from Generals Giraud and de Gaulle that they are in entire agreement on the end to be achieved. Military unity is achieved when it literally had to be. 
Now to New England, the Boston Herald. The United Nations have been suffering from the drawback which seems almost unavoidable in a coalition. They have been united, but not unified. They have been one in spirit and diverse in action. When they disagreed regarding strategy or even major tactics, there was no one supreme agency which could resolve differences quickly and effectively. The Russian, North African, and Pacific campaigns have all been successful, but in spite of the lack of a mighty, cohesive effort. The victories would have been more decisive and achieved sooner if one small group of men had exercised complete authority. The Portland Evening Express. Two men made history at Casablanca, the two leaders who boldly took great personal risk in order that they might face each other across a table were the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Great Britain to thresh matters out man to man. In the South, the Times-Picayune. It must be inferred from the great length of the conferences engaged in by extremely busy civil and military leaders that war plans were made and discussed in meticulous detail. With such an array of military brains gathering for so long in one place, it is reasonably certain that terrific offensives action and the assignment of military command in vital areas figures in the decisions. The Charlotte News. Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt, they talked, these men, for confused North Africa, for hell in the Pacific and Atlantic and the Middle East and Russia. They brought a meeting of British and American minds as they talked and outlined the future for themselves and the rest of the world. Now in the Midwest, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. General agreements are no less momentous because they are general. Now the United States, Britain, Russia, and China have a program to bring their cause to victory. The weeks to come will show us what the plan is. For today, it is enough to welcome the dramatic news of the moment and to be cheered by the promise it inevitably holds. The St. Louis Globe Democrat. Out of this dramatic meeting, there has come a new sense of unity. United Nations, not only in words, but in coordinated effort. It would seem that Litvinov, at least, could have clippered over with the president. That's the editorial opinion that you'll be reading tomorrow in your newspapers. Now, finally, here is Cecil Brown for an analytical summary of what tonight's announcement contains and what it does not contain. Cecil Brown. This meeting in Morocco may be the highest point in our high road to victory. As a result of this gathering, the eventual defeat of the Axis in Europe may be achieved. We are now, and have been since November, at the turning point of the war in Europe. But history will decide that the methods used to defeat the Axis were charted in those ten days of meetings in North Africa. Of course, it's probable there were gaps in the discussions. In such meetings, everything cannot be foreseen, and sometimes vital issues are bypassed. That happened in the previous three meetings of the President and the Prime Minister. So it's reasonable to assume that as time goes on, the gaps in the discussion will become noticeable. But we do have the right to assume that this time, the road to victory was mapped, and not with too many detours. Striking events this year probably will stem from the meetings. But before those events are old enough to become history, we have a hard and bitter road to travel. The unconditional surrender of the Axis will not be easy to win. That phrase, unconditional surrender of the Axis, is a happy one. But the president, when he uttered it, had no misconceptions of the terrific job to be done before it becomes reality. History will prove him right on the size of the task. At this meeting, the president and the prime minister had something more than faith to sustain them. They were face to face with a series of stunning victories on battlefronts. That was not the case at their previous three meetings. 
Then the democracies in Russia were going through the darkest days in history. As President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill sat down in Morocco, they could contrast the circumstances of those other meetings. Each of us can. Their first meeting was dramatic. Roosevelt and Churchill met in August 1941 at a secret rendezvous on the high seas. Out of that meeting came the Atlantic Charter. We weren't in the war then, but we were near it. In Singapore, we felt the approach of war in the Far East. Russia had been attacked, and some ex experts thought Russia would be out of the war in another month. In the face of impending disasters, the president and the prime minister charted the brave new world. They met again sooner than they probably expected. On December 22, 1941, Mr. Churchill arrived in Washington. Pearl Harbor had been attacked two weeks before. They sat down to talk knowing that we had almost been knocked out of the Pacific. The Philippines had been invaded and could not be held. The same was true about Singapore. The Dutch East Indies were doomed. In that atmosphere, Roosevelt and Churchill worked out offensives, and they decided that a second front in 1942 was the answer. From that time, we tried to hang on to what we had, but on every front, we were pushed back. Then, last June 18th, Churchill came back to Washington. The tide of our retreat had almost turned. The Japs at Midway had suffered their greatest defeat of the Pacific War. The Russians were retreating, but holding their forces intact. The British in Egypt were receiving men, guns, and aircraft, and revising their tactics. At the June 18th meeting, the decision was reached to open a second front in North Africa. But first, in August, we invaded Guadalcanal. Then on November 7th, came the invasion of North Africa. And on November 19th, the Russians started their winter offensive. The official announcements on this fourth meeting are vague. They deny the people who fight and die a reasonable understanding how they are to fight and die. There are serious gaps. Most experts agree that a unified command is necessary. That is not reported tonight. We are given vague hints that Generals Euro and De Gaulle have reached an agreement. Because we went into North Africa as political amateurs, people want to know if now we have become professionals. Events will determine how well those matters have been settled. From this meeting, people want to be assured that we shall not be outsmarted and outstripped by events. CBS World News has brought you a special broadcast with reports from its correspondents at home and abroad on one of the most dramatic and vital developments of the war. We repeat the news briefly. President Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and other high Allied leaders have concluded a 10-day meeting at Casablanca in French North Africa. They agreed on plans for the total destruction of Axis armed strength. Because of this vital news, it was necessary to postpone the address of Charles P. Taft, originally scheduled for this time. However, Mr. Taft will be heard over the Columbia Network Thursday, January 28th, from 6.30 to 6.45 p.m. Eastern War Time. That's Thursday, January 28th. This is the Columbia Broadcasting...